morning, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for coming today. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Um, I don't know if you saw out there, but we have a uh, bloodmobile. We've got um, we've got live stream here, and we'd love you to give blood um, if you have an opportunity today. Every every bit of blood that you give has the opportunity to multiply. They say for one donation of blood, it can save three lives, and so we'd really like to be part of that. There's never enough blood in the Inland Empire, and so we want to make sure that we are giving to them if we can. So as you leave today, think about it. It doesn't take too long. You get a cookie. I mean, come on, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So we'd love to have you do it if you can. Um, but thank you. Thank you for being here. It feels like summer just hit, right? It was like, okay, now. And then it's 105 degrees. So um, I, would, I would argue if you want to always be cool when you come to church, come to the 9 a.m. service because it's like 62 degrees at that service. And if you want to just sweat with other people, come to noon because that's the worst time. So anyway, um, <clears throat> hopefully... Hopefully you're doing well. Every week we've asked, where have you seen Christ break through in your life? Where's the Christophany that you're seeing? And I had the opportunity to um, speak at um, an Adventist Health Hospital at White Memorial and got a chance to talk to a lot of the people that are there. I spent a couple days down there speaking to their associates this week. And I recognize that um, not everybody's doing well. Um, it's a great organization, great place, but healthcare, and many of you work in healthcare, it's been a rough go. And um, just read reminded me, just reiterated to me that sometimes you are going to have to be the Christophany for somebody in your life who's really needing to see Christ through you. And so don't discount, don't underplay the effect that you have as you show love, grace, compassion, mercy, all these things to the people in your lives because they're, people need it. People need it today. Um, because I think it, especially when things are going bad in our lives, it feels like it's been a while since we've seen God. I mean, what you do, what do you do when it has been a while since you've actually seen God? Everybody deals with it in different ways. You know, do you just get used to living without God? Do you lament? Some people do that. Do you gnash teeth, as it says in the scripture? Like, I don't really know what gnashing of teeth is. Have you ever thought about that? Is it, are you just grinding your teeth? Are you chomping on things? I've never known what gnashing is. But do you gnash your teeth? Do you move on, not even think about God anymore? Do you wait on him? Do you hide from him? How we function in the interim of God speaking to us says a lot about us and about our relationship with them. And we all have different ways of dealing with it. Do we lose our expectation and awe that we should be living with as people of faith? I mean, when we forget that God actually shows up, we, we have a tendency to lead these pretty kind of agnostic lives, not expecting anything, not expecting God to move, not expecting God to speak, and not expecting, you know, miracles to happen in our lives. And in fact, when God hasn't shown up in a long time and we've kind of moved on in some respects, we have a tendency not to believe it, not to believe what God says to us, not to believe that it's even happened, or not to believe what God is going to request of us, if it will. Um, and a lot of times it's because when God shows up and makes a request of us, it's a request that's not 100% reasonable and we're not prepared for. And, um, you know, has anyone ever told you that you can do something that you absolutely cannot do? Like you really can't do it. But they're like, no, no, it's fine. You can do it. I was, I was teaching lifeguarding when I, I, no, I wasn't teaching lifeguarding. I was a lifeguard and I was teaching swimming when I was in college um, one summer. And I was teaching these little kids how to swim. And like little littles, right? Like two, three, four years old. And this mom came with this, you know, probably three-year-old and, and puts her child, this little boy on, on the 
the edge of the pool like they do. And I usually had three or four that I was dealing with at a time in this lesson. And I said, you know, like a, a good responsible lifeguard does, can your child swim? Is it comfortable with, is he comfortable with the water? And she's like, oh yeah, he's great. He's a great swimmer. He's really comfortable in the water. I was like, oh, that's great. This will be an easy lesson, easy money, no problem, right? So, um, so I go to the first kid, and the kid, you know, kind of jumps into my arms, and we swing around, and I dunk him in the water and put him back up. And, you know, they do the, and then breathe, and it's all fine, and they had a fun time. It was great. Second child did the same thing, no problem. Get to this kid, and I go reach for this kid, and the child is so afraid, it starts involuntarily shaking. Have you ever seen a little kid do that? Like, and I'm like, oh, like, and you can tell, like, the shaking gets harder the closer you get, so you back off a little bit, and it calms down a little bit, which is fun to do, but the mom was over there, so she could see me, so I couldn't play that game for too long. Um, but, but I was like, okay, okay, not this time. So I went back, did the first child, the second child. I went to this, this kid again, and this kid just wasn't having it. And I was like, I don't know if this kid's afraid of me. It's possible. I had long hair. I had this long kind of goatee. I looked a lot like Charles Manson. I'm not going to lie. So it's fair that the child wasn't super, like, ready to jump into my arms. But I thought, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't grab this kid. Maybe this kid will jump into my arms because he likes water so much. So I stood a little bit further back, and I was like, come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. And he's like, oh. And he tried, he didn't, he just sat there. I was like, okay, no problem. I'll just go back to the first child and maybe I'll get him on the third pass. I go to the first kid, I go to the second kid and out of the corner of my eye, I don't see this kid anymore. And I'm like, oh, that's great. The kid decided to swim. And then I look around, I'm like, I don't see this kid anywhere. Where is this kid? I look at the mom and the mom's looking at me like, and I'm like, you don't, where's this kid? I wonder what could have, oh no. The child was at the bottom of the pool. Just for the record, that whole interaction of me looking at the parent, that took like half a second. It wasn't like the kid was down there like trying to figure out how to breathe underwater. The kid like literally went boom, boom, right to the ground. And I went, oh no, and picked the kid up. And you know, you do that thing where you're like, hey, you're okay, you're okay. And the kid's not okay. And it's got that look of terror in its eyes. And the mom runs up and she's like, what are you doing? I said, well, you told me that the child could swim. She's like, why would we be at lessons if we could swim? And I was like, why did you tell? I don't want to have this conversation. It's not really going to go anywhere. Anyway, good news is child's great. Olympic swimmer won gold medals. Not true. I have no idea what happened to that kid. But, um, but wouldn't that have been a great story though? Like that would have been amazing. That's a lie. Um, but, but no, sometimes we're told we can do something that we can't do. Today we have a story of trajectory, right? We're reading the story of Gideon, and I've always been amazed by the story, where it starts and how it ends. Now, we're not going to do the whole thing, of course. We're reading from Judges chapter 6, but the way this story starts is really telling, and so we're going to get to about 11, 12 verses today. Um, it starts like this. Then the angel of the Lord, remember that's an apositional statement, so that means the angel that is the Lord. It's not an angel that's not the Lord. It is an angel that is the Lord. That's how that's written, an apositional statement. Um, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, not Oprah. We haven't given her a town yet at this point, right? Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Ebezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. Now, a lot going on in this text. 
So let's jump into it, right? The context is this. God had given, given the Israelites over to Midian for seven years. They had not heard from God in seven years because they had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. It says that at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. So we meet Gideon, and the name Gideon means hacker or hewer, right? Somebody who cuts something. And what's interesting is that some people, some commenters think that this is a nickname. Gideon is a nickname. His real name is Jerubbabel, which is one of the best names in all of scripture because you get to say Jerubbabel. Why don't we say it together, shall we? Here we go. One, two, three. Good. I love that name because anytime you can say two B's together, ba ba ba, it's super cool. What a great name. So they think it's Jerebabel, right? But we also learn that his father, Joash, right, which means God is strong, comes from the tribe of Manasseh, which this tribe was given land on both sides of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan and the west side of the Jordan. We're assuming that Ophrah is on the west side of the Jordan River, so after they passed into the land of milk and honey, as it's called, right? And the fact that he was threshing or beating out grain in a wine press tells us of the uncertainty of the times in which he was living. You usually do this in a windy area on a hill somewhere, right? So you can kind of throw up the grain and it blows away the chaff. You know, because you all do this, right? That's how you do it. There, there's, there's chaff, it's called, which is kind of the outer shell of the husk of wheat. And you have a tendency, you, you, oftentimes they'll do it in a basket and they'll kind of move the basket around to separate it. And then they'll, put, they'll pull up the grain, they'll push up the grain into the air and the chaff will blow away. There's even songs that talk about this. He was not doing it in a hilly, windy area. He was doing it in a wine press. Wine presses have a top section where you put the grapes and you press them. And then that fluid flows down to a second section. That's usually down below three or four feet, depending on exactly how it was built. And that's where the fluid will be contained. So he is threshing wheat in the bottom of a wine press, which means he is hiding from the Midianites. And this is how God shows up. The angel that is the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now, this is not a mighty hero. Another translation for this particular name is man of valor. And we have to ask the question, is he being sarcastic? Because he might be. Is he being sarcastic? Is this ironic? Right? Perhaps he was, you know, he was hiding, so he's hardly courageous at the time. But he says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Which begs the question, right? Like, is he? He hadn't been there for seven years. I mean, where's God when you need him? Seven years, the Midianites have oppressed the Israelites. He's in a wine press. Hardly feels like God is with him. And I wonder, does it feel like God is with you too? Especially when things feel like they're falling apart. They must have thought God had abandoned them. Perhaps that is why God starts with this massive greeting, mighty warrior. So Gideon engages in the conversation. Sir, he replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Now, you need to understand, this is not a polite conversation, right? The way the Hebrew is reflected, and this translation doesn't really do it justice. It was, um, it's, excuse me, Lord. Um, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, handed us over to the Midianites. This is not a, a, a polite conversation. Right? And this is the, 
This is the way we feel about God all the time. Are you really with me, Lord? Really? Are you there? Miracles used to happen. They don't happen so much anymore. Where are our Abrahams? Where are our Moseses? Where are the opportunities that we're going to get in order to really see you working? I mean, God worked in the past. Why not now? We've all asked that question. Gideon blamed God for abandoning them. But this interplay is fascinating because are you the type of person who complains a lot in a meeting? Like, are you the type of person who, when they say, well, you know, we should be doing this, you're like, we shouldn't be doing that, we should be doing this, and you talk a lot? Have you ever noticed that those types of people in meetings are the ones that often get those things assigned to them? Like, it's the worst thing. I do this all the time. I pray before I go into meetings. I'm like, Lord, keep my mouth shut. Nobody needs to know my opinion. I'll just, between you and me, I'll just think it and I won't say it. That never happens because I have no internal monologue. I literally don't think in words inside my head. I have to say it. And so I often get in, into meetings where I'm just kind of going off and like, it should be like this and you should do this. And I hate it when the person who's running the meeting says, oh, it sounds like you want to do it. No, I don't want to do it. I want to complain about it. I want somebody else to do it. Well, this is what Gideon does, right? Have you ever said too much in a meeting and the thing gets assigned to you? Then the Lord said to him, right, right after this, all right, go with the strength you have and rescue the Midianites, rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you, go ahead, right? Fascinating thing. I think he dumps it on Gideon because Gideon's complaining, one, but I also think he met Gideon and said, you're a mighty warrior, so he must have had some sort of plan for him. But then he says, go in the power that you have, go in the strength that you have. It's kind of ambiguous. What power does Gideon have? He's in a wine press. He's obviously a little cowardly. Does he have money? Doesn't say that he necessarily does. It says he's from the least house, which we'll get to in just a second, right? Has he won any battles? Has he beaten any giants? Has he crossed any seas? What power? Is he a leader that the people would listen to? I mean, does he have a lot of Instagram followers? Is he an influencer? Who is this dude? What power does he have? Same question can be asked of us, right? What power do you have? If God tells you to go in your own skin, to go in your own power and do the thing that he's asking you to do, what power do you have? When I was in college, I was um, or kind of reluctantly a uh, religious studies major. Wasn't planning on going into ministry necessarily. And one of the reasons why is because all the other, um, I shouldn't say all, but certainly some of the other um, religion majors definitely wanted to be pastors. Like they wanted to be like black suit, Bible carrying kind of pastors, which I kind of thought that's what pastors were. And I didn't have much interest in that. I dressed from, you know, from a thrift store. I looked like I was homeless most of the time. I was, uh, I was definitely, I was playing in a rock band. I was definitely not somebody who was going to go into pastoral ministry. And um, in one day, I got multiple job offers, and it felt like God was maybe calling me to this. So I made a deal with God. I said, all right, here's the deal. I don't know that I'm like these other people that are going into ministry. So if you want me to be in ministry, I've got to do ministry in the skin that I'm in. Like I can't, I'm not going to wear a black suit and carry a big old heavy Bible. That's just not kind of my vibe, right? And I said, so Lord, you find a space for me to be me and do ministry in the skin that you gave me because I believe that you gave it to me. Why would you want me to change it so much? So if you can find a place for me to work, I'll do ministry for you. And God has been really faithful over 27 years in allowing me to be the person that I am and still do ministry for his church and for his kingdom. 
So when we ask the question, what power do you have? It's a real question. What has God imbued into you already that you can use particularly for the job that he's asking you to do, for the calling that he's giving on your life that only you can do, that only you can have the influence for? It's really important for us to understand that because God doesn't call us to be other people to do his will. He calls us to be us amplified to do his will. And that amplification comes from somewhere. But Gideon's still not having it. He says, but Lord, how can I rescue Israel? That's a stupid request. It's too much. My clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh. So I'm in Manasseh, which is the weakest of all tribes, and I'm in a clan that is worse in the, in the tribe of Manasseh. Like, we're, I'm the least, even me, I'm the least in my whole family. These are reasonable questions. He's nobody from nobody, from nowhere. But God has an interesting development plan. And by the way, this but Lord, it's excuse me, Lord, this is not a polite conversation. But what we realize is that God's development plan is different than what a lot of people would think. See, God calls first. God's first move is to call us. When you get that call, by the way, it's usually uncomfortable and most oftentimes unreasonable. In fact, if God is calling you to something that you're already doing, I don't know that it's necessarily the call of God. Because when God shows up, he's going to ask of you something that's deeply unreasonable, something that you probably cannot do without God. Because why would he call you to do something that you're already just really competent at? So he calls Gideon and he says, listen, I need you to go do this. You need to free Israel. And then he says this, I'm sending you. I'm sending you sometimes all the authority that is really needed. God calls and sends first before he invests in someone. He does invest, but before he invests, he already has made the call and he's already said, I'll be with you. He's made that promise. So I think it's fair for us to ask, what are you called to? And I'm not talking about what are the mundane things that you're called to. I mean, what are, the, what are the dreams? What are the dreams and visions that you have that are overwhelming, that can't be done by yourself, can only be done with a portion of God working through you? Because those are the things that God is calling you to. Right? Can you even do it? We have dreams that we think, oh, they're just too big. They're just too much. They seem unattainable. You can't even fathom them even happening. I've been there. But you also can't believe that it can't become a reality. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. In fact, you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. This is how easy this is going to be. This is investiture. Right? This is God investing in you. This is where God comes close and invests in the call and the sending and the human that he calls. This is where God moves very close to you. So let's ask this question. If you've heard the call of God, where is God investing? And how is God investing in you? If you believe that God has called you, then you have to believe that God is going to invest in you. And you need to understand this. God doesn't make bad investments. God never makes bad investments. You know, we do. I remember my wife and I thought we would be, you know, we would be, we'd be landowners and landlords and we started to invest in property and it went really well until it went really badly and now we don't invest in property anymore because it didn't really work out for us. We've made bad investments. God doesn't make bad investments. So if God is calling you, you're a good investment. So that means you never need to feel worthless or less than. In fact, the truth is that you are exactly the raw materials that God wants to invest in, that he needs to mold you into exactly what you need to be. It doesn't matter where you're from, because he can work 
on your trajectory. But the truth is, Gideon didn't have experience with God's presence. He had been gone for seven years, and so he wasn't used to hearing it. So he cannot imagine anything beyond his own human resources. He was right when he said, who am I? I can't save Israel. That's absolutely right. And we are like that when we look at these dreams and visions that God gives us, realizing one, this is never going to happen. Of course it's never going to happen. But he didn't ask for it to happen on your competency. He asked it to happen with partnership with God. We shouldn't make the mistake about forgetting about the resources of God. God promised his presence. And often the presence of God is all that we really need to get things done in our lives. And so Gideon, still having trouble with it, says, listen, if you're truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Now, probably in your head you're thinking, unless you've been reading this along with us this week, probably in your head you're thinking, oh, okay, this is where we get the, the fleece, right, and the water. That's not it. It doesn't come yet. That happens after he builds an army for God, right? So Gideon says, if you're going to help me, I need a sign. By the way, this is based on the pattern of Moses and the burning bush. Gideon gets really bold and asks for this sign for two reasons, though. One, to confirm God's favor on him, and two, to confirm God's presence with him in this venture. So what he's saying is, I want to make sure it's you, and I want to make sure you're going to stay around. I want to make sure you're going to be part of this. And so he says to God, don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. So God says, all right, I'll hang out. Sounds good. He, he dictates the nature of the sign, which is bold, right? But God assents. Okay, so this is what Gideon does, right? Gideon hurries home. He cooks a young goat, and with a basket of flour, he bakes some bread without yeast. Then, carrying the meat in the basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. This would take a while, right? God had to wait for a while, because I don't know how long it's been since you cooked a full goat from like jumping around in the yard to, you know, putting it in a pot. I don't know how long that takes. I've never done it. It feels like that's a little bit of an investment of time, right? Um, so when he gets there, the angel of God said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and then pour your broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. By the way, this portion of this meal, it was not small. It's a whole goat. It's tons of bread. It's a big meal, which tells us it was for a deity. Then the angel that is the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of his staff in his hand. And fire flamed up from the rock, consumed all that he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappears. He goes. Right? This should have given Gideon all the information that he needed, a promise that God would be with him through this. However, it seems that he interpreted not as a sign of intimacy with God, but he fears for his life. Because what is he saying? We've seen this in all the different Christophanies that we've been talking about. When Gideon realized that the angel of the Lord, that, that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. This happens all the time. When they realize the power that they've been in front of, they're shocked. Have you, ever, have you ever been working on the electrical in your house, knowing that you turned off the power, but not actually having turned off the power? Because our house was built in like 1962, and I'm pretty sure the electrician was drunk when he did it. Because I was working the other day in our kitchen because we had a, a switch I needed to change. And I went and I turned off the power in the kitchen. And I always check, except when I know. 
right? Because I knew the kitchen's all out. Every single appliance, every single thing that's plugged in anywhere in the kitchen is turned off. So that's great. The house is fine. So I take off this, the faceplate. I take off the switch. I begin to undo the, um, the wires. And of course, I'm doing this with the screwdriver in my hand that's not a shielded screwdriver because I know that the power's off. Because why wouldn't it be? Why would there be one switch in the whole house that wasn't on the same breaker as everything else in that stupid room? So as I'm doing this, of course, I touch the wrong thing. And of course, I connect it. And of course, my body becomes super full of adrenaline. <laughs> No, I shock myself, right? It does that big loud pop. It smells like something's burning. All of a sudden, you know, the screwdriver's now melted, melted into this switch and, it, and electricity's coursing through my veins. And I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I think this is how Gideon felt. Gideon's like, oh no, I was in front of God. And, and I love what God says here. He says this all. Remember, there's words of affirmation that always have to come when people recognize that God is there. He says, it's all right. Don't be afraid. You're not gonna die. Right? If we were to translate that in the language today, it would sound like this. Hey, calm down, relax, you're fine. But have you ever noticed that they all recognized that they were in the presence of God just a little too late? Like, and this is what cracks me up. They get really fearful when the presence of God, when they recognize the presence of God, thinking, I can't believe he didn't kill me. Right? What they need to recognize is that it wasn't their recognition of the power of God that's important here. It's the fact that God showed up at the beginning. His power was there the whole time. God showed up at the beginning and didn't destroy them, which means he must love them. He must want to be intimate with them. God's presence and his intimacy is recognition that we're going to be okay. If you're having a conversation with God, you're going to be okay. If you're experiencing the presence of God, you're going to be okay because he was willing to be there with you. And that's what they need to understand. It's not their recognition that they were with God. It's the fact that God showed up at all. It's been there all the time. So what does he do? Gideon builds an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which is simply the Lord is peace. And the, uh, the, the altar remains in Ophrah in the land of the clan of Ebenezer to this day, except that's not true. Um, when it was written, it was for the people of that day. So this is kind of like a footnote where he's like, you don't believe the story? You can go look. It's right over there. But like, don't now because you don't know where Ophrah is, right? But at, the, at that time, it was there. Then that night, the Lord says to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Right now, in, in the flow of this text, what should happen is after the last verse, after 24, verse 24, it really should have just jumped to verse 34 when he begins to build the army for taking on the Midianites. However, that's not what happens. We have this little kind of parenthetical statement where he says that night God comes to him and says, hey, you need to do some work on your own house before I can use you outside of, you know, for this call. And what he needed him to do is he needed him to go tear down that altar to Baal, which they were making money on because they hadn't sensed God, so they had built an altar to Baal and it was on his father's property. So it, it, 
it reminds us that even like with Moses, right? Before Moses could do what God called him to do, he had to circumcise his son. Before Joshua could do what God was calling him to do, he had to circumcise all the men of Israel, right? Before Gideon can do what God is calling him to do, he's got to go tear down this altar, right? So this is what happens. He says, then build an altar to the Lord your God on this hilltop sanctuary. Laying the stones carefully, sacrifice the bull as a, built, as a burnt offering on the altar, using fuel, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. So consecrate it to God. Same thing that they did with circumcision. You need to do this with this kind of tearing down. Before you move out to do God's bidding, do you need to take care of something in your life? What do you need to repent of? What do you need to excise out of your life? What do you need to hew and cut out of your life? In fact, that's what he says. You need to go Gideon that altar down. You need to hew it. You need to hack it down. What is it in your life? What baggage are you carrying that you need, to, you need to drop? You need to get rid of. You need to get away from your life. What sin are you carrying with you that, that you're just struggling with? And by the way, it's often secret, right? What do you need to repent of, confess to, and walk away from? So that you can do the will of God. That you can do that big thing God wants you to do. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord commanded. By the way, when he took 10 of his servants, you're like, oh, you're from the weakest tribe and the weakest clan and the weakest, you know, but you have 10 servants? Maybe you're not doing that bad, right? Anyway, he takes 10 servants and did as the Lord commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and of the people of the town. So Gideon did it, right? He did it at night, which tells us the true state of Israel at the time. They would have killed him. So you need to ask yourself in your life, are things bad enough in your life that you need to get rid of them at night for fear of the reaction of your friends or your family or the people around you? And this is where we end. And I understand that this is kind of a weird place to end. But we all have things that we need to excise in our life in order to do the will of God in our lives. Sometimes it's our jobs, right? Sometimes it's relationships that are toxic in our lives. Sometimes it's sin that we can't get rid of, stuff we don't want other people to know about. Sometimes it's just a refocus and a reconnecting with God so you can do what he's asking you to do. I mean, if God is calling you to a task, God is also calling you to prepare for that task. And this is what's fascinating in this story, right? At the beginning, the first words out of God's mouth are mighty warrior man of valor. He wasn't calling Gideon a man of valor because Gideon was a man of valor that day. He was calling Gideon a man of valor because Gideon would become a man of valor as he partnered with God in the calling that God had for him. It was a process that he needed to get to until he could take on the Midianites. He becomes one because of the investment that God made on him, the call, the sending, the investment, then he becomes that man. But he had to get rid of some of the things in his life in order to experience God's investment in him. So what do you need to get rid of so that you can become that mighty warrior for God? Because if God is calling you to something, understand he will invest in you. And understand this, God doesn't make bad investments. And this is the beauty the beauty is that God has a call on every single one of your lives. I don't know what it's for, but don't think too small. 
right? That thing that you think in the, in the, in the kind of deepest part of your mind, that's the thing. The thing that you're not sure you can do. The thing that you might be ridiculed if you do. The thing that the people around you might not understand that that's what you're supposed to be doing. We do this in community. We do this with wisdom of the people around us. We do this with spiritual mentors and guides, hopefully. But don't just say, well, I could never do that because, well, I just couldn't do it because that's what Gideon said. And God said, yeah, I get that. Calm down, relax, you're fine, but I'm going to be with you. And so whatever God is calling you to, know that God's going to be with you. And know that as He's with you, He's going to invest in you. And know that no matter how badly we feel about ourselves, God doesn't make bad investments. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you call us too, right? Call us mighty warrior. Call us genius. Or just call us to do your work, whatever you want. We'll be there. We'll be available. But you're going to need to invest. And it's beautiful that you've already shown us that you will, that your promise to invest is true. So Lord, as we think about how you're calling us and what you're calling us to, as we think about what we need to excise out of our lives so that we're not caught dragging along a lot of baggage that's really going to hamper us in this call. We ask that you move close to us, that we understand the ways that you're going to gift us, the way that you're going to invest in us. And Lord, may we truly see this theophany of you in our lives so that we know we're going in the direction and the job and the calling that you would have us do. We pray this in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.